Would you take your Bibles with me and open them to Mark chapter number 9. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through 50. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version this morning, a passage that confronts us with two very uncomfortable subjects of sin and hell, things that we don't usually enjoy talking about. Nevertheless, they are here in the text before us today. So let's put our attention together on Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse number 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather having two hands than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Verse 44, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Our Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word this morning. By your grace and by your spirit, change us, save us, sanctify us, make us holy, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. This past week, as I was preparing this sermon, I came across a prayer in the Puritan devotional book, The Valley of Vision. You've probably heard me mention it many times. The prayer said this. It said, Grant me to stand with my dying Savior, to be content, to be rejected, to be willing to take up unpopular truths, and to hold fast despised teachings until death. And I felt like this prayer was appropriate for us this morning because, friends, there are no more unpopular truths or despised teachings than that of sin and hell. These subjects are often diminished by Christians in the church and altogether denied by unbelievers in the culture. But these weighty truths are so important that Jesus warns us about them with graphic clarity here in Mark chapter 9. And it is impossible to miss his driving point that sin is serious because hell is, is real. Sin is serious because hell is real. And so with that sort of big idea in mind this morning, I want us to work through this passage together and see, first of all, that we must beware 
of offensive influence. Okay? We must be aware of offensive influence. Verse 42 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now Mark tells us from a couple of weeks ago, if you may remember, that Jesus is in, he's now in Capernaum. He's in a house. Could very well possibly be Peter's house. And he has a little child in his arms. And he's using this child to illustrate what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. So, in context, this phrase, little ones, has (laughs) immediate vision for the people who are gathered there in the house. They see this child sitting on his lap. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Now this phrase, little ones, is not necessarily only a reference to children. It is a reference to children, but not primarily a reference to children. It means the insignificant, the ordinary believers. Those who believe in Christ, but there's nothing special about them. They have a simple childlike faith. They believe in the Lord. They believe what He says. They believe His Word. And this passage then opens with a warning to anyone who would cause such a believer to stumble into sin. The word stumble can mean to trap. It can mean to offend. The implication is that offending the faith of a believer in such a way so that they are led away from Christ into sin or unbelief. Now we need to ask ourselves this morning, how do we do that exactly? How do we cause another believer to stumble? How how do we lead someone into unbelief as a Christian? Let me give you a few ways. Three, actually. This happens in the church all the time. Three ways we cause other believers to stumble. First, it happens through pastors. <laughs> it happens through pastors, seminary professors, and scholars who tell the ordinary believer, much like you and me, who does not necessarily have advanced theological degrees. They don't have PhDs. They don't have Master of Divinity degrees. They don't have any of that. They they have a Bible. And they tell them that they can't believe in such things like the literal history of Genesis or that the Bible is not really inerrant. It actually contains error or that the Bible is not really that clear. It's not sufficiently clear enough for them to understand. You see, the quickest way to cause a believer to stumble into unbelief is to cast doubt on the Word of God. And friends, there are a lot of Christian leaders. There are a lot of pastors, professors, and scholars who will have to answer for the little ones that they have led astray like this by telling them, well, the Bible really doesn't mean what it seems to say. 
A second way that we see this happening in the church today is by those well-known Christians who are falling away from the faith, and then they post their deconversion stories online. I've read probably a dozen of them in the past two or three years. They put their deconversion stories on the Internet so that, you know, I guess they think they're helping people. But others who are struggling in their faith read this, and then they are encouraged to abandon their faith too. Let me give you some names. Josh Harris, I've mentioned him before, formerly a pastor of a well-known large church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, Covenant Life Church. Abraham Piper, who is the son of renowned theologian and pastor John Piper. John Steingard, who was formerly the lead singer of the Christian contemporary group. Oh, I can't even remember their name. Uh, Kevin Max. Kevin Max, uh, who was educated at Liberty University. At Liberty University, Kevin Max met with two other guys, and they formed the Christian group DC Talk probably one of the most influential contemporary Christian musical artists of the, of the present day. He renounced his faith. Well, at least the biblical version of it anyway. And they do this publicly, very publicly. And I wonder how many young struggling Christians have they taken with them into unbelief because of their influence that has caused another believer to stumble. Let me give you a third way that we cause others to stumble. This is probably a little more applicable to us. And that is by living lives in front of others that deny the power of Christ to change our lives. You see, if they see us who claim to know Christ who claim to follow Christ, living in distinctly unchrist-like ways, then they may begin to wonder if Christ really can make any real difference in their lives because it doesn't seem like He's making that much of a difference in ours. See? Our manner of life must be worthy of the name of Christ that we bear, must be worthy of the gospel, because we can cause others to stumble if it is not. And Jesus, get this, says that we would be better off dead. Drowned in the ocean than to lead another believer into unbelief. Let that sink in, friends. Oh, how we need to beware of our influence that can offend the faith of others and cause them to stumble. And may I suggest that the most fundamental way that this happens in the church is actually in the home from fathers and mothers who don't live the Christian life in front of their children. And their children grow up thinking, well, Jesus really didn't make a big difference in my parents' life, so why should I think he will matter much in mine? we might as well go jump the bridge. You hear me? And go into the ocean, Jesus said. Because it is better for us down there 
than the judgment that awaits us for causing one of these little ones to stumble. Oh, this is heavy. Secondly, we must beware of personal temptations. So Jesus now, he, he shifts his focus to a warning for believers, right? So he's, for, he's warning his, his disciples or anyone, anyone to not cause a believer to fall, to not trip them up, to not trap them, to not exert offensive influence on them. But now he's, he's calling believers to beware of those personal temptations which cause us to stumble, right? Look at verse number 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Look at verse number 45. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I think one translation says tear it out, rip it out. For it is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. The hand, our actions, what we do. The foot, our motion, where we go. In the eye, our vision, what we see, what we look at every day. Jesus covers all the bases. Our actions, where we go, what we see. Every day we walk through fields covered with landmines of temptation, capable of taking us out with a single misstep at home, at work, at school, in the car on the way home from work. in the privacy of our bedrooms, in the apps on our smartphones, filled with landmines of temptation that can wipe us out one wrong step. See, we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that sin is at war with us. It hates us. And Jesus is calling us to take an aggressive attitude toward it. He's not saying, all right, he's not telling us that we should literally mutilate ourselves or rip our eyeballs out if we sin, but he is calling us to get on the front lines and do whatever it takes to win these daily battles with temptation that we have, which are uniquely different for every single person in here, okay? What I struggle with is probably a lot different from what Miss Mary struggles with. You understand, we all face different, unique temptations. If internet pornography 
is a temptation for you. And let me newsflash. It is for, as one study has recently shown, at least 94% of American men who admit to having looked at porn within the last six months, of which 82% say they are regular porn viewers. I've told my daughters the first question I'm going to ask the young men they bring home to marry, not is, are you saved? But when is the last time you've looked at pornography? It's everywhere. Christians do it. Christian men do it. Christian women do it. 30, 33% and rising of, of Christian women are looking at pornography. Guess what? If internet porn is a problem for you, Put a filter on your phone. Put it on your computer. Confess your sin. Get accountable to somebody. You can't do this alone. You cannot defeat that, that viper alone. You've got to have accountability. If drunkenness is your problem, stay away from alcohol. Stay away from the people who entice you to drink. If it's pride, if it's envy, self-righteousness, anger. How about this one? Unforgiveness. How about, how about bitterness? These are the sins. You can see drunkenness. You can see perverse lust. But it's harder to see unforgiveness and bitterness and pride. Deep. They're buried deep right here. Out of control lust. Disobedience to parents. You guys realize, young people, that when Paul was writing of the sins that God would judge, he listed disobedience to parents right beside homosexuality. That should, that should get our attention. Because we are masters at justifying our sin and minimizing and diminishing our sin, aren't we? Whatever your particular temptation is, friends, we need to get serious about it because guess what? Sin's singular objective is our eternal ruin in hell. That's it. That's the goal of the, of the virus. Our eternal ruin in hell. Listen to what John Owen quoted from him several times. 17th century Puritan. He wrote the book on killing sin. Literally. He says this. Quote, Sin's expression is modest in the beginning. But once it has gained a foothold, it continues to take further ground and presses on to greater heights. This advance of sin keeps the soul from seeing that it is drifting from God. We're not even aware that we're wandering away from truth. Owen goes on, he says this, It has no boundaries but utter denial of God in opposition to Him. You always be killing sin 
or it will be killing you. End quote. But how do we how do we kill sin? That's what Jesus is telling us to do, by the way, right here. To cut it off. Tear it out. How do we do it? How do we cut off the foot that takes us to the wrong places? Or how do we tear out the eye that looks at worthless things? Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man, we could easily put middle-aged man, old man, young child, young girl, whatever. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Two verses later, your word, right? Your word I have hid in my heart. Here, this has got to get here that I may not sin against you. I could stand here at church and give you 15 steps to doing war with sin, but there's only one you need. Read your Bible. Meditate on your Bible. Pray your Bible. And obey your Bible. John Bunyan, another Puritan from the 17th century. You may know him as the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote these words in the cover of his Bible. He said this. It's found, scribbled. Either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Oh, friends, we need to be beware. We need to beware of these temptations to sin. Lastly, in this passage, we see that we need to beware of eternal hell. We need to beware of eternal hell. The New Testament says a lot about hell. We could literally spend a long time talking about it. But I want to focus only on what Jesus says about it right here in these verses. Because everybody wants to talk about what Jesus says. Or what would Jesus do? What would Jesus teach? What would He preach? What would He say? Well, here it is. And He mentions hell six times in these short verses. And he describes it in two ways. Number one, it is a place of eternal suffering. Look at verse number 43. It is better for you. Now listen, we need to let the weight of this kind of sit on us this morning. Who is he talking to here? His disciples. And we're all about eternal security. But he's warning his disciples with hell. It is better for you, he says, to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. The Greek word here for hell is Gehenna. It is a real place. It is a physical place. It is a ravine. 
southwest of Jerusalem. Is everyone listening to me? I want you to hear this. I want your attention. Don't, don't, this is the word of Christ. Gehenna was a ravine southwest of Jerusalem where trash, human excrement, and animal carcasses were burned. Now, that's a nasty place. My kids freak out when I tell them to take out the trash. Somehow that, I always get told, well, that's the man's job. I hate it too. This is a place, a, a ditch, a ravine outside of Jerusalem, not anymore. It's in the time of Christ, a prior intertestamental period. Trash, human excrement, animal carcasses were burned. And because of the constant, constant influx of refuse, all this trash is constantly being brought in. The fires never went out. Friends, please do not look at your watch this morning. Please do not pull a Joe Biden. I'm not trying to be funny. This is weighty material Jesus is talking about here. The fires never went out. And this is the image that Jesus uses to describe the eternal torment of the damned. A place where the fire is never quenched. There is no relief. There is no chance for repentance anymore. Now we don't have to know all the details about hell. We don't, we don't need to know where it's at or how it will simultaneously be a place of fire yet utter darkness Jesus told us it would be. All we need to know that hell is that hell is a place of unending torment. R.C. Sproul calls hell a place of searing and unceasing pain. It is a place of eternal death, Jesus taught us right here in this text. Secondly, he says that hell is a place of eternal death. Eternal suffering, eternal suffering, one, two, eternal death. Verse 44, the first part, where their worm does not die. Now Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66 here. Verse number 24, Isaiah 66, 24, where the prophet foretold the destiny of the wicked. And again, the image here is of a worm, this is nasty, of worm-infested animal carcasses as they are thrown into the fires of Gehenna outside of Jerusalem to the southwest. An endless supply of decaying flesh for the maggots to feast on. Friends, Jesus is being shockingly graphic here. But friends, these are just word pictures. And just like the endless glories of heaven cannot be described in the book of Revelation by the Apostle John by human language, he said, I just saw something that was like gold. 
Count the times that John uses the word like in Revelation. It was like crystal. Human language can't describe the glory of heaven, and neither can it describe the horrors of hell. But we object, don't we? And we say, is it just? Is it fair? Is it right for God, a loving God, to consign unbelievers to a place of eternal torment? It's not the torment that gets us. It's the eternal part. So, I want us to talk about that very question tonight. I want to encourage you to come back. Is it just for God to consign unbelievers to a place of eternal torment? But you see, we object to hell as if it's some sort of overreaction on God's part to sin. But it's not an overreaction on God's part to sin. It is the only appropriate reaction on God's part to sin. You see, we don't understand hell because we don't understand the holiness of God. Hell is real, friends. Look at your feet this morning. Look at the ground beneath your feet. It is as real as that ground. And the reality, the sad, the sobering, the heavy, the weighty reality is that you and I have loved ones and friends who will spend an eternity there under the just wrath of a holy God. And that's why we should never, ever say things like, well, it's been a hell of a day. My life is living hell. No, it's not. It's not even close. The worst of our very worst days, you've heard this, war is hell. No, it's not. Not in a million millennia is war hell. The very worst of our worst experiences here on this earth does not compare to an instant under the wrath of an infinitely holy God in hell. We need a little reality check, don't we? We need to wake up and smell the ashes, friends, of our sin. Remember, Jesus is driving somewhere here. He's getting, he starts talking about the, the, the sin that we are tempted with. And it is better to go into life all maimed up. What he's saying there, it is better to go into heaven beat up. You're, you're, he's talking about perseverance. Your face is dirty, your clothes are torn, you're hungry. But you made it. Your body is, is, is broken, but you made it. It is better to go into life maimed than into this place where the fire is not quenched in perfect health. Finally, look at verse number 49 with me. A couple of puzzling verses here. He says this, Everyone will be seasoned with fire. i got to admit, when I first read that, my mental process, I immediately saw season, I saw my grill. 
of seasoning chicken on my grill, right? Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Well, I don't season anything with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Now, I do that. We do that when we put salt on our food. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? How will you season what? The sacrifice. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Remember this whole context, way back in you know, 10 or 12 verses earlier, maybe even more, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. They were, in, they were in, a, in a tussle with one another. And now he ends by saying, have peace among yourselves. Well, this is how you do it. You remember that you're a sinner on your way to hell. You want to get the church to quit arguing about stuff? You get the church to, to, to feel the weight of their sin and the, the horror of the reality of hell and the grace of God that has been shown us in Christ to keep us out of that place. But the, the precise meaning of these two verses, 49 and 50, has, and how it relates to hell has puzzled Christians for, for centuries. I've read many things. I read, I read J.C. Ryle, you know, I quote him a lot, and he gave like five or six different interpretations that were common in his day in, in the, the 18th century. But salt and fire are what? They are means for purification. You purify things with salt and fire. And Jesus seems to be saying, he says this, look, everyone is going to go through the fire one way or the other. Either the fire of perdition in hell or the fire of purification through trials. And you guys, looking at his disciples, he's like, you need to make sure that you're going to go through the right fire. The fire of purification. Friends, this is a call. 49 and 50 here in Mark 9 are a call for us to examine our lives for the evidence of the saving grace of God so that we don't end up in this place that he's talking about. As much as we may not like the reality of hell, we need to hear about it. It stings. Listen to Bishop J.C. Ryle. I told you I like him. J.C. Ryle says this, There is no mercy in keeping back men from the subject of hell. Fearful and tremendous as it is, it ought to be pressed on all as one of the great truths of the great truths of Christianity. Our loving Savior speaks frequently of it. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation often describes it. Ralph says the servants of God in these days must not be ashamed of confessing their belief in it. Were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all that believe in Him, we might well shrink from the awful topic. Were there no precious blood of Christ able to cleanse away all sin, we might well keep silence about the wrath to come. But there is mercy for all who ask in Christ's name. There is a fountain, Raoul says, open for all sin, 
Let us then boldly and unhesitatingly maintain that there is a hell and beseech men to flee it before it is too late. Friends, if you have breath in your lungs this morning, if you're watching online, you're breathing, it is not too late for you. There is no sin that Christ cannot forgive. There is no stain in your past that He cannot wash away. But you must abandon all hope of being good in yourself and satisfying the righteousness of God. Forget it. Never going to happen. There is only one righteousness that can satisfy the righteousness of a holy God and that is the righteousness of His Son who gave Himself on Calvary's cross. We, it's here before our eyes, literally before our eyes this morning in the Lord's table. He gave Himself on Calvary's cross for all those who will throw themselves upon His mercy. Friends, Jesus will save everyone who will turn away from their own goodness and trust in Him. And if you're here this morning, I know you all, but I'm going to tell you anyway. If you're here this morning, or if you're watching online, and you have never experienced the saving grace of God in your life, I urge you, I compel you to come to Christ in repentance and faith today. Let's pray.